there's this wonderful feminist writer whose name is Gloria Anzaldúa, and she speaks about us living, us immigrants living in the borderlands. So what that means for her and how she describes that is we literally have one foot in this land here, one foot in our motherland. You know, for example, for me, uh, I am raised in Montreal. I've been here since I was about two years old. Um, and there's still a piece of me that sometimes feels like I don't belong. I went to French elementary school, French high school. I'm a Bill 101 kid. Um, you know, I, I speak French perfectly and I still don't feel like I 100% belong in certain situations. Take me to the Philippines and I love it and I love going back home and I love visiting. There's still a piece of me that doesn't feel 100% like I belong back home. So I think this is a common parallel diaspora struggle, uh, no matter where we're from. Uh, we have one foot in and one foot out. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to season two of Point of Entry. Thank you for continuing to travel along with us, the Refugee Center, as we guide you through the resettlement process here in Canada and the inner workings of grassroots organizations here in Montreal. Stay on board as we explore and experiences the different challenges faced by many newcomers in Canada. In season two, we are continuing to do so with the help of our alternating hosts and our couple lineup of amazing guests. We hope you are excited as we are as we continue this journey. Thank you for coming along for the ride. So my name is Abdullah Dawood. I think this is like my fourth or fifth time being a host, so I'm getting kind of used to it. Uh, I'm the executive director here at the Refugee Center. and I'm very, very excited to have the pleasure of interviewing uh, Fran Stoner with us today. Uh, so without further ado, Franz, can you give us a quick intro of who you are and what you're currently doing? And we'll get into it. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Refugee Center, for having me. And thank you for all the wonderful work you do. Um, my name is Fran Stoner. I am a mental health counselor and community organizer. Uh, I work particularly in my cultural community, which is the Filipino community. Uh, but I think as many folks know who are listening today, when you are from BIPOC communities, when you are from marginalized communities, you wear many hats and you do many things. So that's why I always introduce myself as a mental health counselor and community organizer. I think these things, um, these professions shouldn't be operating in silos. Um, I always say we can't counsel or therapize away systemic barriers. So, you know, you can have someone who's really dedicated to bettering themselves in counseling, but they're still faced with the daily realities of having systemic barriers. Um, I am also uh, in the Mental Health and Wellness Center at Vanier College. So I'm very passionate about working with youth. Um, you know, kind of like 16, 18 to 24, 26. Um, they are my loves. I like to support um, student groups, especially cultural student groups. I think it's a really important way for uh, folks to, yeah, solidify their identity and see people who are reflecting the same experiences as them. Um, but also the importance of BIPOC marginalized communities of taking up space in academia. 
Yeah, you threw a lot at us right there. So I want to know. I don't I have a lot of questions already, but it's it's good. Like you said, many hats. Um, so I want to touch upon this concept. So it is in your field, so mental health work. Um, so speaking mostly with the community that deal we deal with and my own upbringing and and in Canada, uh, mental health is a very taboo subject. We don't really approach it in the way that you know the Western world approaches it. Uh, where the way we perceive mental health is, oh, this guy has like psychotic issues, like, oh, he needs to go get medication or they need to go get medication. But it's never really approached in the way in like a health perspective or just something you take care of, just like how you would, you know, take care of your own body or eat well or do different things. So uh, you're in a field that's deeply needed within our community, but maybe speak a bit about those types of obstacles and if you still face them today and maybe the different methodologies that you use to try to overcome them. Thank you so much for naming that, Abdullah, because mm -hmm. absolutely it's a struggle in many communities, especially immigrant communities, especially marginalized communities. Um, the issue is the way that we speak about mental health in our mainstream society is exactly that. It's taboo. It's stigmatizing. We see it as something pathologizing. So what that means is exactly we think that something's wrong with us. But actually, uh, what we need to work towards is work towards this model of emotional, mental, spiritual hygiene, just like you would take a shower every day, just like you would, um, you know, try to exercise. It's the same thing. We have to take care of our emotions, our minds, and our spirits as well. Um, but absolutely, that looks different in our communities. So I think the way I approach it is I approach it from an education prevention perspective of if your basic needs are not met, um, you're not going to be able to move forward doing what you have to do. But I also want to acknowledge that it's really important here to name intergenerational trauma, right? So intergenerational trauma is all that baggage we carry from um, our families, our immigration story, uh, our elders who've come before us, who... You know, I think we see the difference in generations of how, let's say, our parents, our grandparents talked or didn't talk about mental mm -hmm. health, and then yeah. how now we're kind of breaking those barriers and doing it differently. And I think the main difference here is exactly that, is basic needs and survival mode. Our elders were in survival mode. They really had to just kind of get here, figure out the lay of the land, you know, imagine, and this is what I'm sure you guys do at the refugee center, right? Like helping figure out paperwork in a language mm -hmm. that you've never engaged in, you know, mm -hmm. um, signing a lease, finding a doctor, yeah. like when you're in survival mode, um, something like taking a walk or doing yoga for your mental health is like, whatever, I don't have time for that, you know? Exactly. So I think us as the next generation, we can acknowledge um, the hard work, the suffering, the sacrifice from the previous generation, but also honor that all that sacrifice should mean that we step out of survival mode and we thrive. I think our ancestors wanted us to thrive. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think we were put here to be miserable is kind of yeah. one of my beliefs. You know, um, immigrant people come from all different kinds of faiths, all different kinds of religions, spiritualities, walks of life. And I think if you dig deep in any type of religion or spirituality, 
creator, higher power didn't put us here to be miserable. So mm -hmm. I think it's our responsibility to actually take care of ourselves, um, take mm -hmm. care of each other. And that really begins with the basics of are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Is your home life good? And emotional, mental and spiritual wellness. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, definitely hit the nail on the head. And it's crazy because I still feel on survival mode all the time. But uh, speaking to that, I think in many I mean, ways we still are, right? Yeah, yeah, we still, are, we still yeah, are. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It looks different. And I, and like, uh, I have this conversation with my parents all the time, right? Because, you know, we came here as refugees. And uh, I always take a step back, like every once in a while, like when you get, you know, in survival mode and you're in the mud of everything, you're always like, okay, we're actually like our parents or our grandparents where we, they've never dreamed in their wildest dreams that we would have this life, right? Like that we would have all these opportunities that we've done all these different things. So we've already kind of accomplished everything, right? Like we've, we've done it, you know, we've gotten there. And I think that's not talked about at all, right? We're always going back like, no, no, we have to do more. We have to do more, we have to do more. And it's weird. It's, it, I think there's different layers to it. So for example, for me, I think the layer to it is because like as a refugee and an immigrant, when we came to this country, it's always like this weird feeling that you have to prove yourself, right? Not just for your family, but also in the society that you live in, like, especially now in Quebec, like we can go about it for a while, but you always feel you have to prove yourself. So you're always trying to excel or succeed or uh, go above and beyond. And uh, we talk about this a lot at the refugee center when we do advocacy work, like all the numbers, all the stats, all the metrics show that immigrants are outpacing all the expectations <laughs> that, are, uh, that are put upon us. Yet we still are the target in 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 the political landscape here in Quebec and in, in Canada as a whole, right? Um, so I think that kind of like brings us to like the next topic because they're all kind of interlinked, right? Um, in your own work, you try to kind of you try to run for office, right? You try to get more civic engagement. Uh, you try to get more representation among the immigrant community, uh, and this is something I've always wanted to do as well. Uh, not run for office. I'm not that brave, but in general, uh, try to get uh, the 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 newly minted Canadians, as you would say, uh, involved in voting, involved in civic engagement, and it's always a huge challenge. Um, we don't vote. Uh, we we we're we're very discouraged to vote, and we feel that our vote doesn't matter, right? Um, so I want you to kind of speak about that because you you were in the thick of it, right? So you were you were in both those like communities and trying to figure out why and trying to get them to go out and vote. Like what were the obstacles that you faced and how's your kind of like your feedback after the entire process? Oh, big loaded question. Exactly, <laughs> so many, exactly. So many layers. I'm trying to yeah. I'm trying to solve this too. I'm trying to figure it out. But yeah, I'm very interested to see what your opinion on this is. Exactly. So what I've seen in a lot of our communities is that it's really difficult to call Canada 100% home. So uh, I think the best way to describe it is there's this wonderful feminist writer whose name is Gloria Anzaldúa, and she speaks about us living, us immigrants living in the borderlands. So what that means for her and how she describes that is we literally have one foot in this land here, one foot in our motherland. You know, for example, for me, uh, I 
am raised in Montreal. I've been here since I was about two years old. Um, and there's still a piece of me that sometimes feels like I don't belong. I went to French elementary school, French high school. I'm a Bill 101 kid. Um, you know, I, I speak French perfectly and I still don't feel like I 100% belong in certain situations. Take me to the Philippines and I love it and I love going back home and I love visiting there's still a piece of me that doesn't feel 100% like I belong back home. So I think this is a common parallel diaspora struggle, uh, no matter where we're from. Uh, we have one foot in and one foot out. Like So it's a really big question um, of identity. So if we don't feel like there's a place that, there's, that here, Canada, is 100% our home, it's a little bit more difficult to want to be engaged. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to be civically engaged when your basic needs are not met. So I'm someone who never <laughs> imagined to run for office. Definitely not. It was definitely, I think there's this joke that you have to ask uh, uh, someone, especially a woman, and then forget it when you're a woman of color, you have to ask them uh, seven or eight times before they run mm -hmm. for office. And mm -hmm. I believe people ask me more because I was just like, but I don't even understand what this means because my focus was always just directly grassroots with the community. Are people eating? Do people have proper housing? And that was kind of my focus uh, because mm -hmm. I knew that if you don't have that, then you can't even begin working on your mental health, right? Mm -hmm. um, so finally, when uh, really amazing people kind of approached me and started showing me the numbers of the neighborhood that I grew up in. So I grew up in Cote d'Ange. I've been living in Cote d'Ange since I was two years old, since I landed from Manila. <laughs> um, so I do feel a really big attachment to this neighborhood, but it's a neighborhood that's chronically underfunded. Um, and I don't think it's something we really talked about much because if you're just trying to put food on the table and pay rent, are you reading city budgets? you're probably not reading city budgets. Yeah. Um, if you're just trying to put food on the table and pay rent, you probably don't even know who your city councilor is. Uh, mm -hmm. You probably don't even know the difference between municipal, provincial, and federal politics and who takes care of what, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of us have had to leave our countries because of political turmoil. Um, my family themselves started coming to Canada because they were leaving the difficulties of the Marcos regime at the time. They were leaving martial law. Um, so when you come here, you're kind of just like, and this is a very um, immigrant piece, but I think it's also a very Asian immigrant piece of being the model minority, right? Keep mm -hmm. your head down, work hard, and you'll get your due. But the reality mm -hmm. is, if you keep your head down and just kind of, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and, and work hard, mm -hmm. the reality is sometimes still things don't work out, right? Because systemic barriers are um, very real. So I think like I'm going in different directions, but like you said, it's like, it's all connected we're not gonna get civically engaged if we don't really feel like this is home. I myself in my community have asked elders who've been living here for like 30, 40, 50 years, who've contributed to the fabric of Canadian society, who during the pandemic kept us safe because they were the frontline workers cleaning, they were the nurses, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, mm -hmm. Who was cleaning doorknobs is people from yeah. our communities, right? Um, and I've heard them literally say, we don't get involved. We don't really engage in politics because 
this is their thing. It's not ours. And then what do you mean? What do we mean by there? We mean Canadians, but are we not mm -hmm. Canadian? Mm -hmm. So it's so yeah. complex, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's the, the, the outside, the inter, the out, out, external struggle, the internal struggle. It's, um, it's so many things. So yeah, I think it's all connected and that's why it's really hard to get people um, engaged. Hey y'all, it's Alina and I'm here to get you in the know. At the start of this year, the Coalition Avenir Quebec announced new immigration plans. The CAC is introducing efforts to ensure that all immigrants coming to Quebec be 100% francophone. This affects all non-refugee migrants applying to immigrate to Quebec and the goals are projected to be met by the year 2026. That's it for now and I will be back later. So, so yeah, so you speak about this identity crisis and I'm glad you, you brought it up. So it's definitely there. Like we see it every day among the populations that we serve. But uh, I'm curious to think, to, to know about what you think about this. So in particular, what I see, I see like these two parallel lines, right? So I see the identity crisis that you're talking about, but I also see this weird patriotism with Canada that they have as well. So like an interesting stat, because we have to do the IFC work, one interesting, very interesting stat is immigrants and refugees identify as Canadian more than Canadians identify as Canadian. So uh, I think it was like 94% of immigrants and refugees identify as Canadian, whereas in other Canadians who've been here like three, three, four, five generations are like, no, I'm like Polish Canadian or I'm this Canadian, I'm this Canadian. But so they, they do... Kind of, they have this romanticized idea of Canada and they identify with that romanticized idea, but the practical idea of like participating in civic engagement. Um, and I like what you said, you said spiritual hygiene. I've never heard it in, in, in that term before. Uh, because that's so deteriorated, it's uh, and kind of pushed aside. And I think it impacts their ability to actually be civically engaged. Because like you said, their basic needs are not met. And their mental health, which is tied to their basic needs, is not taken care of. So they don't feel like there's any way out of it, but they're still at the same time thankful that they're not in the situation that they were in before. It's, it's a really weird, uh, it's a really weird thing to tackle. And for us, we try to be like, okay, man, maybe educate them, maybe educate them how the system works and all that kind of stuff. And the way we went about it was was. I think in retrospect, very wrong. <laughs> but the way we went about it was we tackled it from the federal perspective, like, oh, teach them a federal po politics. Like, this is your MP, this is all this. And then we realized that, like, that's too broad. It's too big. And you ran for city council, right? If I'm, if I'm so it's the municipality that's actually more important, right? So city council, actually, I didn't know this, even I've lived here for a while now. Municipality has a lot more power, right? In your day-to-day -day life. Um, so I was wondering, is that why you chose to kind of go to city council? Uh, have, is that what you kind of noticed as well? And I want to know about your experience running. Like, what did you face? Like, were there things that you didn't expect? And how did the immigrant community kind of respond to your time or when you were canvassing and stuff like that to try to get them out and vote? Yes, thank you for that. And thank you for pointing out so many important things. So uh, I just want to go back to survival mode for a second because survival mode is exactly that, right? It's a space that we enter um, mentally to be like, I just need to get through the next hurdle. Survival mode is exactly that. It's made for mm -hmm. us to survive, 
but it's not made for us to stay in long term. Uh, and it's made for to be a stepping stone towards thriving, okay, from survival to thrival. Um, what is happening a lot in our communities is they have been in survival mode too long. And that's why talking about emotional, mental, spiritual health and hygiene is so important because if you don't start from the inside, then you can't move out of survival mode. So what it is with what you're saying in terms of like immigrants identifying so strongly, and thank you for using the word romanticize because that's exactly what it is, is we mm -hmm. come from worse, so we think this is good enough. Mm -hmm, we come exactly. from worse, so we yeah. think that this is good enough. We're like, oh mm -hmm. my goodness, I come from a country, there's no jobs, there's no, uh, there's dictators, uh, there's curfews, there's there's all these violent things. Um, mm -hmm. This is good enough. Be and happy with what you have, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But why not want more? Why is that not okay? Why don't we want it? Like, we see it with children. We encourage our children to be ambitious. We encourage our children to be go-getters. We encourage mm -hmm. them into leadership positions. But how come we're not doing that ourselves or we come from elders who like might not have seen it that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so exactly, like, I totally see how you started at the federal level because that's what affects immigration. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But again, I think it goes back to basic needs. Again, mm -hmm. never imagined myself running for politics, but then I grew up in a neighborhood where I saw the services kind of deteriorate. I grew up in Cote d'Ange where I remember there being um, more cultural activities, um, more after-school programs uh, that weren't for pay, that were covered by different things. Um, I remember always going to this place for like Edo Devoir and things like that because mm -hmm. my parents didn't speak French and I went to <laughs> French school. And mm -hmm. as I was getting older, I was kind of seeing all these places shut down or get smaller and smaller. Um, and literally, the municipal politics is the closest thing to home. It's it's the water running in your tap. Um, it's you open the door and you like, you know, hop on the bus, you know, like there are definitely um, collaborations between municipal provincial and provincial federal, but municipal politics is the closest to home. So I was actually uh, a very, very new mom when I decided to run. I was in this interesting place where uh, my son was um old enough to start daycare. So I was like, okay, well, what am I doing? What am I going to be up to? I had a few private practice things going on, but uh, nothing fully full-time and concrete. And yes, I had the time to read municipal budgets and mm -hmm. started getting really, really upset. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. I've observed this in my neighborhood growing up, but never really looked at the statistics and never really looked at the numbers. So for example, Cote de Neige and DG, uh, sorry, in the city of Montreal, um, there is approximately an average of $550 per citizen uh, that is allocated in terms of municipal services. Well, that varies from, um, from borough to borough, uh, depending on population, depending on, I guess, uh, how much taxes people are paying. But the way it works is basically um, every neighborhood pays taxes, pays all these things, and it kind of goes into a pot in the city center. 
And then it's the city center that kind of decides, okay, we're going to spread it back to different neighborhoods in this way. So it's a very old model that definitely needs to be revisited. And I think a lot of um, council members are re revisiting it or, or yeah. attempting to open that conversation. So just to say, um, Cotonej NDG, so city average, about $550. Okay. Cotonej, uh, a place like Ville Saint Laurent, which is a little bit um, bigger, more taken care of, they're at $750 approximately a head and you can see yeah. it in their streets you can see it in their parks right yeah. um yeah. Cote NDG is at 350 so we're okay. 200 dollars less in terms of services per head so these were the numbers okay. from a couple of years ago perhaps things have changed maybe it's gotten worse maybe it's gotten better it's been the pandemic so mm -hmm. when i just look at the park that my son uses with his daycare and i compare it to a park in the plateau I can promise you there's a huge, huge, huge yeah. And that's kind of what had pushed me to run. So, you know, you were asking me about my experience and I have to say, you know, there were really beautiful moments. There were people who stepped up for me that I didn't think would step up for me. Um, I had overwhelming support from youth and I mm -hmm. had overwhelming support from youth who still did not have their papers. So that speaks yeah. to a lot. So they couldn't vote. But because they couldn't vote, they were like, well, at least if we volunteer for you, we're doing something. So I think something's mm -hmm. changing mentally for the next generation. But interestingly mm -hmm. enough, there was an older generation. There was a more, I guess, conservative generation who were kind of like, how dare you? Like, how dare you yeah. do this? as an immigrant mm. woman of color, as an Asian woman, we are supposed to be the model minorities and you are too loud and you are speaking out too much. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's also uh, a little bit of, in my culture, we call it colonial mentality, but I'm yeah. sure that there's some a similar term in many cultures. And I think mm -hmm. this is where we see a lot of colonial mentality. And what that is, is it's seeing whiteness as legitimacy, proximity to whiteness as success, proximity to whiteness as authority, proximity to whiteness as the best way to get benefits. So if we see leadership as only whiteness, it's really, really hard to imagine someone who looks like me um, being in office, right? Mm -hmm. And that comes from our people as well. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, again, there's that good enough mentality because of course, I was hurt when I would see elders who would be like, no, we're going to vote for the white guy, <laughs> you know, yeah, right? Elders from my yeah. own community. Yeah. But it's also this thing that, unfortunately, you know, I've seen um, politicians like give Filipino uh, organizations $500 a year for their Christmas party. And then you have the elders who are like, oh my goodness, thank you so much, good enough, because yeah. proximity to whiteness as legitimacy, as success, yeah. as all these things. But then they turn around and do so many beneficial things for already affluent and established communities. So I wasn't just trying to get people civically engaged. I was trying to change a culture and yeah. change the mentality. And that's not done overnight. That's not done in one election. Um, I'm okay with having run and lost because there are mm -hmm. a lot of seeds that I planted um, in the community that mm -hmm. I think finally people were starting to think about it and were starting mm -hmm. to be like, oh yeah, we've been here a long time. How can we only get $500 
for a Christmas party yearly and yeah. that other community has a specialized library, you know, like, That's crazy, like yeah. that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to touch on these two points, I, I think, because you said colonialized mind, we use that too, but we, uh, like, for example, in, 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 in Middle Eastern culture, like I'm going to speak to it, uh, like we call it inferiority complex. Like we have this inferiority complex with uh, the communities that we've come into here as we see that the Canadian or like the white standard is the superior standard, right? So when we see our own people, our own community running for positions, we're like, oh, they're just going to be as corrupt as the ones that we have back home, you know? So they all like, oh, it's just going to be corrupt. Like we have this mentality of like, oh, every, because of what's happening over there, we associate that with our own community that's trying to gain a bit of power here and a voice here and we're like no no, no. like we're, look at this country it's so well organized you know like uh like these guys they know what they're doing you know like look how it is but in reality like um yeah for sure canada canada has a lot of good things going for it but i always tell this to my parents like we have to take ownership of 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 the history of this country as well like if we want to be canadian canada has a lot of dark dark history uh what they do with the indigenous community how they treat them, how um, completely neglect the stuff that we were taught about the indigenous community. We were first came was complete propaganda. I mean, complete propaganda. Um, and I, it took me a while to break out of that cycle too. When I was in, in, in high school, and I was like, no, this is not really the utopia that we were told it was, you know. Um, and that's when my mentality changed. Like, no, I'm, like it's not as bad as back home, but it's still pretty bad. And there's still a lot of things that are going on here that are not great. And these guys don't necessarily know exactly what they're doing, you know? Um, and exactly. I think there's also yeah. a battle of from below and from above, right? So our communities yeah. from below are like, no, 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 this is good enough. Like, don't complain. How dare you complain? Mm -hmm. And then the powers who govern us from above mm -hmm. are like, you guys should be grateful. So exactly. it's like this exactly. huge battle for those who are in the middle who see all angles and are like, we need change and we need systemic change. So our communities are suffering and the importance of being civically engaged and knowing about politics is politics is literally what can make quicker change happen. I think prevention is still important. I think education is still important. All these different mm -hmm. things are still important, but education is the long-term, right? It's like, mm -hmm. we have to keep doing it and we have to do it now. Um, and mm -hmm. we'll only see the benefits down the line, just like we're seeing benefits now of the previous generations. But if mm -hmm. we want quicker things, it's really through politics. You know, I'm just thinking exactly. of like now how we're allowed to have our dogs on the Metro. So that yeah. was passed municipally like it was proposed like I don't even think it was proposed even a year ago and mm -hmm. then now it's happening so like look mm -hmm. how quick that change happened so imagine mm -hmm. if we focus on way more uh you yeah. know like basic importance things, yeah. yeah you know and I yeah. don't want to remove importance of people's pets like that's not of what course. I'm trying to say like of course. Of course. less people's pets I've been yeah. a, a dog parent before in the past mm -hmm. but when people are not eating and don't have shelter I mean, why can't we do these swift, quick moves for basic needs is what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say, right? Mm -hmm. Happy New Year. It's pretty cold out there. So if you're a newcomer to Canada and are in need of winter clothes, stop by the Refugee Centre to benefit from our clothing drive. 
drop by Monday to Thursday between the hours of 10.30 and 4.30 to pick out your favorite items. See you there. Exactly. And I think that's that's the thing. It's, and I, I love that you said that the youth is changing. So uh, just like how I, I think I went through this journey on my own and I've seen my siblings and, and, and my cousins and everyone else kind of go through the journey on their own. Uh, I still feel it's not mobilized. Like I still feel like we're very fragmented. So uh, it's, and it seems that, and that's, and that's the thing uh, I'm curious to know if you had this experience when you were running, there's intersectionality among all these different communities. So where are we talking about the Asian community? We're talking about the Middle Eastern community. We're talking about Southeast Asian community. We're talking about all these, the African community that, that that's here. These are problems that face us all across the board. Um, like the, the at the refugee center, it, it, like we have people from all around the, the globe and they're facing the same issues, right? The same, sustain, same systemic issues that you talked about. Um, did you see any collaborative effort among all these communities to try to, to, to get out and organize? Like would, was the youth like a very diverse contingent of individuals? Uh, do you know of any movements like that uh, that exist? Or, or do you still think it's a bit, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm foreseeing too much in the future? No, I think that it's happening. It's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I had the pleasure, honor, beautiful experience a couple of weeks ago to attend a McGill University BD lecture series. And the lecturer was Maria Ressa. So Maria okay. Ressa is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. She's the first Filipina to win the Nobel. Um, she is a journalist. She basically went against our government uh, and really fought for press freedom. Uh, mm -hmm. And now she is basically on the receiving end and is going to be uh, she she has to go to the Supreme Court of the Philippines because like literally she's been arrested multiple times. So she's really big about fighting um, for press freedom. And what she shared with us during this talk is that we're really in a pretty scary time because there's a lot of elections coming that have just passed globally. And there's a lot of elections coming up even in 2023. I think she said there's about 30, 31 elections coming up in the next mm -hmm. year. And we're living in a really interesting and pretty scary time because the sort of more right-wing thinking folks um, are actually the majority of presidents and heads of state and government at the moment. And mm -hmm. while I don't want to like kill people's hopes by saying <laughs> that, like the mm -hmm. like she mentioned, the pendulum always swings. The pendulum always swings. But I think that a reaction to that is actually a lot of BIPOC, marginalized, immigrant, refugee, community solidarity. Uh, there is some building happening, and I think that's beautiful. So, you know, when you we're think, talking about colonial mentality, when we're talking about inferiority mentality, whatever the mm -hmm. term is in your culture, I think we all know the feeling. Um, mm -hmm. Colonialism worked because it pitted us against each other. It was divide and conquer. It was blacks shouldn't be friends with Latinos and Asians are racist towards blacks and and mm -hmm. and you know Arabs are terrorists and we don't talk to them. But that mm -hmm. is a colonial and inferiority tactic. You know when I mm -hmm. talk like if I put my therapist hat for a moment, mm -hmm. if you want if you are an abuser who wants to impose inferiority on something, that's exactly what you do. You put them down 
and you isolate them. That's the tactic. So that worked for so long because our communities were in silo and were like, oh, well, look, the Asians got that and we didn't get yet anything. Look, the Latinos got this and we didn't get anything. But actually through, you know, just moving forward, community building, um, living in melting pots like Cotonej, right? Like we we mm. have this joke, not joke, that like Cotonej is the perfect model for world peace <laughs> because <laughs> we're all here living here and in many ways mm -hmm. it works, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I do see some solidarity building because, and it's like a generational thing, right? So us mm. in our cultures, we have an intergenerational intergener disconnect sometimes with our elders who, like, again, we're in survival mode. But I see us connecting more with the youth, a new generation who grew up here and who are like, wait a minute, my neighbors were Latino, my neighbors were Black, my neighbors were Arab, and mm -hmm. they would bring me food and they would yeah. help watch my kid and they would you know uh pick up stuff for me because I didn't have a car and it's like we do help each other and we are together because we see that like there's such a similar struggle and I think that's really scary for the right right because yeah, it is, we're yeah. finally banding together so I've seen beautiful initiatives like for example um a dear friend of mine uh Monica Patak she's doing her PhD in social work at McGill she taught a course during the pandemic at McGill called Asian migrations but what she did is she was like you know what it was during it was literally in the middle of the pandemic it was literally George Floyd's um death had just occurred murder should I say had just occurred mm -hmm. Um, and she was like, no, I want to be a good ally. I'm not just going to talk about, okay, Asians came to Canada in 19, whatever, or 18, yeah. whatever. She was like, no, I need to do something with the minds that are going to be in this classroom. Right. So she actually changed the name of the class to, um, something like, um, I'm blanking right now, but like disrupting Asian migrations or something like that. Mm -hmm. And what she talked about is how, yes, Asian immigrant experience is this, but it's also a similar, if not worse, experience for brown communities, for black communities, and how it's so important to build solidarity. And out of that classroom, there were different Asian students. Um, yeah, so from the Philippines, from China, um, mm -hmm. who were also South Asians. I think South Asians have a different struggle when it comes to mm -hmm. Asian identity. They don't feel like yeah. they belong, you know? And these wonderful youth, started a collective and they've been going strong for about two, three years now. They are called the Pan-Asian Collective and they're a youth collective that gather, that celebrate culture, um, that teach each other different things. So already when I was growing up, I didn't even hear the term Pan-Asian, right? And now I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This actually speaks to the fact that we have a lot of similar struggles. We should be supporting each other, but we are also not a monolith. And we should mm -hmm. celebrate each other's differences because it's a strength. Exactly, exactly. And then we it also plays on this idea that our communities value the term community more than kind of like individualistic structure that, that we're used to here in kind of North America. Um, but I mean, listen, we can go back and forth about this for a while. So I'm going <laughs> to have to at least go to the next topic. I want to go and learn more about the organizations that you're a part of. So maybe I'll let you kind of take the realm here and tell me uh, a bit more about that. Yes, of course. No worries. So one of the beautiful things that materialized out of my 
political run and my political loss uh, was founding a nonprofit organization called Sant Capua. So basically through my political run, I had so many youth, you know, knocking on doors with me, having really deep conversations with residents about all the systemic barriers they face um, and just seeing how there's not only a lack of services, there's a lack of culturally relevant services, right? That's what's missing. And this is also the piece that I like to talk about when I talk about counseling, when I talk about psychotherapy. Um, it's not one size fits all. And we need to actually be bringing more culturally relevant services um, to the forefront. So um, in 2019, uh, at McGill University, I co-led and organized a conference called Pinay Power. Uh, and basically what it was, is it was a Filipina feminist diaspora conference, and nothing like this had ever been done before. And we gathered about 300 Filipinas from the diaspora from all over the world to just have different discussions at McGill of like, yeah, what are we doing? What can we do better? How can we build more solidarity? How can we continue to kind of fight these systemic barriers? And so many beautiful relationships came out of that uh, and beautiful community building. Um, and a lot of folks who were a part of Pinay Power then helped me organize uh, another conference called the Filipino Canadian Futures, which was at Concordia University and who then also followed me throughout my political career because that's what community is right like mm -hmm. I've definitely mm -hmm. run and supported people in other ways um so they've come and support me it's it's mutual aid it's community mm -hmm. building and that's how we're kind of going to be able to to move forward uh in this unfortunately broken system so what we do at Sant Capua we've just just started but we focus on Montreal Filipinx youth and their families and focus on giving them um, culturally relevant mental health and wellness services so at the moment we're starting with events because as I'm sure you know it's not easy to start an organization yeah. there's a lot of back-end things that we're still working on um how do we put together a board uh what do you do with a board you know like yeah. Yeah. and I think that's what it is when we go back to civic engagement, if you're from a community where you're looking around and you're like, hmm, I see Jewish community centers, I see Italian community centers, I see Greek community centers, and I'm glad to, I'm very happy to, but I don't see that many Pakistani community centers, Bangladeshi community centers, Filipino yeah, exactly. community centers. And I think civic engagement is asking the why, why? because our communities don't have that previous generation that was able to establish us because they mm -hmm. came from such a survival mode and other communities have been kind of working on this a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So again, it's that ground up work that needs to be done, but also fighting what is coming up from like above down, pushing us mm -hmm. down. So bringing the importance to the forefront of culturally relevant services is pretty much much what inspired my political run. Okay. So are we, are, are, do you plan ever running again or is it like one time and, and done type of scenario? You know, it's so funny. Everyone always asks me that and yeah. it's not a no, but it's definitely not a yes at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm okay. really, really happy in my day-to-day -day life working with youth out of college. That's something that um, I'm very passionate about. And I think, you know, even on the academic level, there's a lot of systemic barriers that 
we do still need to address, right? So I'm happy to be kind of doing that within the system as well. Um, so, you know, for example, um, I wanted to share that one of one thing, one of the things I'm really proud of that I was able to find in the college that I work in is we have a cheating and plagiarism policy. And mm -hmm. I was supporting some students who had been accused um, of plagiarism. And mm -hmm. then I noticed that there was a lot of students who were uh, being accused of this, who were immigrant who had language-based learning disabilities, who were neurodivergent. And mm -hmm. basically I was able to uh, bring forward that actually a lot of these students weren't plagiarizing. They had language-based learning disabilities. They were already immigrants. So English, mm -hmm. French is not their first language. And mm -hmm. then on top of that, uh, when you have a language-based learning disability, it's a little bit more difficult for you to learn how to paraphrase properly, how to yeah. quote properly, how to mm -hmm. reference things properly. So again, we're bringing in what would be the culturally relevant services so that mm -hmm migrants who are neurodiverse who have language-based disabilities can get through the English programs can get through mm -hmm. the French programs and we were able to kind of point that out so that's mm -hmm. an example of like a systemic barrier that was happening and we're like wait a minute wait mm -hmm. a minute not all of them are trying to plagiarize mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. they're just learning a new language with mm -hmm. a disability mm -hmm. and that's why it's really important to have people like you or from our community in these positions, right? It's it's very, because we can point out these things, we can notice these things because we understand the culture, right? We understand the, the relevance of it all. Exactly. And, I think there's wonderful mm, people who work in the system as well. I don't want to say mm, that they're all bad. Of course, yeah. What course, it course. is, is it's a particular lens, right? Mm -hmm. It's you've studied and you have this lens or you don't, and you need the training to have this lens. So I think it's really great to see across the board, you know, a lot of corporate, a lot of academic settings are now doing uh, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion trainings. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a good opening uh, to how do we address these systemic barriers. So I guess I didn't really answer your question of whether I'm running again or not. <laughs> I think that it's because I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Like I'm happy yeah. where I am now. If I see that maybe there's a good opportunity for there, like my commitment is to community. That's really what mm -hmm. it is. If I see an opportunity for really true, real systemic change um, and not just photo ops, shaking hands, kissing babies and that mm -hmm. sort of thing and more surface <laughs> things, uh, mm -hmm. that's not me. If I see there's a possibility to be able to push for um, true, real change, uh, I'll be happy to um, do that. No, I, I think you answered this. Basically, you you want to put your your efforts into places of influence where you can do the change that you want to do, and I think that's very admirable. So, no, hundred percent. I mean, honestly, this conversation has been great. I know we took a lot of your time, but uh, it was really fun talking to you, and I'm sure we'll talk again, hundred percent. Yes, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> so, with that, uh, this concludes our episode of Point of Entry. Thank you so much, France Donor, for this. Uh, to continue learning more about the Refugee Center, you can visit our website at the www.therefugeecenter.org, and you can follow us on our different social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Uh, so, stay tuned for our next episode, and thank you so much for listening. Yeah, yeah.